All right, we're going to be in Genesis tonight. Surprise, surprise. Uh, a couple of things before we get started. We've got some more Truth and Grace uh, books in. They're for catechism, and the catechisms are not just for the children. They're for the adults as well, and so y'all can all use those books, but we have them in the office, and I think Annie and Tiff have some in the classrooms, I believe, but y'all make sure you pick those up. If you don't have one, we want to make sure all of our families have those. Catechisms are a great way to connect the dots for your kids and answer hard questions. We've we found in our home where they'll ask a hard question that's normally you know, how do we feel this? And you have catechisms and you're like, oh, well, let's go from the beginning and see how we answer that. And usually promotes even better conversation. So it's real encouraging. Um, also, uh, pre-K and kindergarten, you can, if your kids are in pre-K or kindergarten, y'all can pick your kids up in their classrooms. They're not going to do the worship thing in the treehouse this week or ever again. Last week was crazy. Uh. Okay. Okay, it was that or the resource room. So you can pick your kids up in the closet at the end of the hall. We're out of space. So um, let's pray and then we'll get into it. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time. We count it a real privilege to uh, open up the word. Uh, Lord, we, we know and confess before we even start the study that if not for a work that's done outside of us by you, uh, this is just head knowledge it's just a gathering of facts, and our hope is that it's worship. And so I pray that you would let the knowledge that we get from all these verses um, to cut and to, to warn and to guide and to inform rightly so that our hearts and minds are changed and that we respond in worship, uh, seeking to put your glory on display as you see fit according to your will. And um, Lord, it's real easy to just gather and talk and hear a cool story or a weird story. Um, but we desire um, that you'd be honored and glorified uh, as an act of worship. Uh, Lord, I pray for the kids as they're in the classrooms tonight, as they're going through Genesis 3 and talking about the fall. I pray that you would um, help them to have an understanding of what sin is and how sin separates us from you and how the only way that that uh, we're reconciled to you is a work done by you, where you clothe us in the righteousness we're supposed to be clothed in, and fig leaves are insufficient. I pray that you would give insight and wisdom uh, to teachers and to the kids alike in the classrooms. Lord, I also want to pray for the Lane family as they've just had a hard week. Um, pray for uh, Lindsay and uh, her family, and uh, particularly her father, as they have had to take him off of life support and just know that these hours now are, are hard for them, and uh, I know that they're struggling, and uh, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty, and I'm thankful that they know a sovereign God in the midst of it, and I pray uh, with them, as it has been their prayer, that they could be bright and aromatic to the rest of their family in a very, very hard season. Um, Lord, we pray um, that your glory would be put on display in all that, and that you would give the doctors uh, wisdom and insight. Lord, again, we submit to you tonight. We ask that you would speak to us and change us. We thank you for reconciling us to you in Christ. And I pray that we would take serious uh, the ministry of reconciliation that we may uh, begin to see hopefully a little more clearly tonight. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to Genesis 32. We're going to cover two chapters tonight, Genesis 32 and 33. And a um, little recap from last week. Last week, Jacob uh, fled from Laban 
for the purpose of context, how old is Jacob now? So he was connecting the dots and getting their simple addition down. Sorry? Yeah, he's close to 100. He was about 70 when he left home for the first time. He was a big boy. He was going out on his own at the age of 70 and um, found himself a, a young lady, and, uh, or a few young ladies, actually. And um, he served for what he thought was Rachel, ended up being Leah for seven years, and then for Rachel, actually, another seven years, and then six years as he took some of the flocks that were flourishing because of God's blessing and kind of started his own business, and uh, the spotted and speckled uh, flocks, and grew that for six years. So he's at, he's at least over 90 here. And for the sake of context, it's important for us to know we're dealing with an old guy. Why does God design that Jacob have to endure Laban? Why does God design that Jacob have to endure Laban? Trials produce steadfastness. What, what, would, what would God have to do for Jacob to come out of this thing good and living with an opportunist who is self-serving? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important as believers that we don't look at this and say, oh man, this is so unfortunate that Jacob here is chosen by God, blessed possibly more than anyone else on the planet among all nations. And we could look at this and say, uh-oh, something happened. This is a bit of a setback. But in reality, it's not a setback. What we're seeing is that we have a sovereign God. We serve a sovereign God. And that sovereign God has had his hand on the whole situation. And because he needs deliverance, he gets to see God as deliverer. Because he needs to be sustained through a hard season, he gets to see God as sustainer. And so uh, it was not without reason that he had to endure Laban. What were the differences between Laban's gods and Jacob's God last week? And we kept our eye on Laban's God. Yeah, you can put one in your pocket and steal it. I'm sorry. Or elsewhere. Under the saddle. The saddle of Rebecca. Rebecca gave the excuse that no man can argue with, ever. Um, and that's where <laughs> Laban's gods were. And Jacob's God was different from Laban's God. How? It's real. Yeah. Yeah. You, you see one with power and one with no power. What else? Yeah. Um, how does Laban respond to God's command? What was God's command to Laban when he was, Laban's like, uh-oh, Jacob's gone, I'm going to pursue him, and God comes to him and says what? Don't say anything to him, either good or bad, and what does Laban do? He goes to Jacob and talks about how God said, don't talk to him, either good or bad. He, he, he treats God's commands as trifling and flippant. As though God is making a, uh, a uh, here's, here's my idea, I'm just God, here's an idea, don't talk to him. That's how he's treating it, as opposed to a command. 
And what is significant about Jacob finally showing some boldness towards the end? What happens at the end of that chapter last week? Yeah, he tells him off in a Christianly way and says, look here. First, I woke up with Leah. Then, you know, I've got four wives now. I don't even know how that happened. And then you cheated me. You changed my wages 10 times. You pursue me out here and you accuse me of stealing from you. And, you know, enough's enough. And he stands up. And why was that boldness such, such an important thing? Yeah, because Jacob was originally a mama's boy. He was trying to cheat his own brother in the womb. He he comes out of the womb holding his heel. He steals the birthright. He swindles his brother. He's a liar. He's a mama's boy. He's scared of Esau. He always kind of stacks the the board in his favor and never... um, you don't see him being bold. And, and even when he has Zilpah and Bilhah and, and Rachel and Leah, and they're all wanting to get pregnant and demanding babies, he's just kind of like, okay, who wants one now? And kind of just is kind of a pushover. He's not real bold, whatever y'all say. And so when you see that boldness, what, what we're seeing there is sanctification. You're seeing God changing him to be more Christ-like and changing him from being something that is not as God-glorifying to being more God-glorifying. Um, What happens when Laban and Jacob redefine the terms of their relationship? Yeah, Laban walks away. And what does Laban walk away to? Where does he go? Home. And what awaits him at home? What was that? Yeah, angry and bitter sons. What else? Huh? Yeah, a poor, weakened flock. Yeah, so you see that the difference between the two, what was the major difference between Jacob and Laban when they redefine the terms of their relationship and he goes on one way and Jacob moves forward? One of them does something that the other doesn't. What do we never see in Laban? Repentance. Laban never repents. And what you see is it is... Obedience is always sweeter than disobedience. And when it's all said and done, Laban never repents and he goes and we don't hear anything else of him. That's the end of his story. He goes home to his bitter sons and his weak uh, sissy flocks and he's done. And here we see Jacob moving forward and growing. We don't see some heroic pinnacle of fortitude and boldness, but we do see a guy who's willing to make hard decisions for his family and willing to step out in faith, and he fears the Lord, and he's leading his family in a God-glorifying way. He is not perfect. Um, as we look at Genesis 32 and 33, I just want to remind us that we're not, when we see Jacob, and when we saw Isaac, and when we saw Abraham, these aren't perfect character studies. What should be happening as we're looking at these scriptures and these lives is a, a sobering reality of, of ourselves, uh, of those that we walk with. It's not, let's be like this guy or do exactly what this guy did. Really what we can do is we can look at Jacob and everyone else and say, um, well, this was a good part of their journey. This was a not so good part of their journey. Oh man, they showed some boldness here, but, but these things, that was faithlessness. And you look at those things and we're informed and we're warned and we're encouraged because we can say, you know what? I want to make sure I'm doing that 
But then there's other parts where it's, you know, I, I don't think I want to do that. I don't want, think I want to steal on my way out or sneak away in the middle of the night or be dishonest or be a swindler or things like that. And so these aren't perfect character studies. These are sobering. These should remind us of ourselves and those that we walk with. Now, Genesis 32, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Rather than reading through both chapters, we're just going to take it a few verses at a time. It's a narrative, and we can just kind of walk through it. Verses 1 through 2, Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way. So he has just parted ways with Laban. Laban goes home. Jacob moves forward. Where's Jacob going? Home. And why is he going home? That's where God told him to go. Okay. So uh, verses 1 through 2, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. That's got to be encouraging. And when Jacob saw the Saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Yeah, Mahanaim. So he's going home because God told him to. What else did Jacob encounter? Uh, or when Jacob encountered the angels, um, for what reason do you think God provided these angels? Yeah, that would give me assurance. Oh, cool, angels. Let's keep going that direction. That's good. Now, when else have we seen angels? Previously in Genesis. Yeah? And when do we see him with Jacob? When he was in Bethel? Remember the pillow? The rock? He lays his head down. He's kind of out on his own. He's moving forward. There's some uncertainty. And God shows him in the Jacob's ladder. You see the angels ascending and descending. And what is that affirmation of? To see angels ascending and descending to the earth. And now angels greet him on this journey. It is, yes, you're going in the right direction. But what else does it signify? Yeah? Who? God. Yeah. Angels don't really have a whole lot of worth outside of the worth they have from God. So if I see angels, it's, I mean, we can, <laughs> when, there's so much that can be over-sensationalized in this whole chapter. Things with angels, things with wrestling with God. If you see an angel, uh, that's fantastic. But if you have no knowledge of the fact that God is present and God is helping and God is encouraging and God is moving and God has not left you or forsake you, uh, then the angel is just some, some pretty caricature of niceness or something. Um, it's, it's important that we know that it's an affirmation of God's presence and that's affirmation of God's help. Verses three through five. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Now, before we see what he says, how long has it been since he's seen Esau? He, he left home, yeah. About a little over 20 years at this point. He left home. Why did he leave home originally? Yeah, Esau was comforting himself by thoughts of killing Jacob. So that would make Jacob nervous. He was a mama's boy. He didn't have, he wasn't strong. And they said, go live with Uncle Laban for a while, just while Esau gets over his He's got a little temper. We just need to let him calm down. It's been 20 years at this point. Now, and they're old men, by the way. They're not two young boys battling it out. They were like 70 when this happened. So he's been away for 20 years, and he says, 
you shall say to my Lord Esau. Now, I want y'all to pay attention to things that are weird, because this whole chapter is weird to me. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Do y'all think Jacob's actions are adding up at this point? Yeah? Yeah, it could be reconciling. What, what happened earlier that would cause him to want to... Yeah, yeah, the whole swindler thing, okay? Uh, what else? Why else does this not seem to add up? Seems dramatic. He does seem like a bit of a drama queen. Yeah. Yeah, but how does he refer to himself? As the servant. And he refers to Esau as what? Yeah, so this is adding up to, when I read this the first time, I'm thinking, this just doesn't seem, why is he, why is he not being bold like he was a minute ago? Yeah, he's still scared of Esau. He still fears Esau. Even though he's been seen, uh, he has seen a lot of things. He's been taught much by God. He knows that God is present. He just saw the angels and then, oh man, we're about to have to see Esau again. And all the fear comes flooding back in. Have you ever had a time like that where it's, man, I'm good, we know what's going on, and then some factor comes in and you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. And it's just like fear and doubt and anxiety. That's what he is battling here. Uh, at this point in the text, I become confused because it, it, Jacob looks like a pushover, uh, calling his brother Lord and seemingly trying to buy him off. That's what it looks like. Um, what are the important facts that we know about Jacob and Esau? We already know that Jacob was loved, Esau was hated. What are some other facts that we know about Jacob and Esau? We're going to unpack this together. Esau was tough, hairy, smelly, just a dude, man's man. Didn't love Jesus. Okay, what else do we know? Yes, and a good cook. Make a mean red stew. What else? Technically the firstborn. What else? What about the other family members? What were their relationship with Jacob and Esau? Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. Yeah, a lot of names here. We can get them confused. Okay. All right. Verses 6 through 12. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, tell me if you think this is good news or bad news. We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. <laughs> then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau goes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. It's like, you got a bunch of money, I'm going to put some over here and some over here, so if this place burns down, at least I got this left, right? He is dividing camps. Now, what is, just before we even consider the details, what's significant about the fact that he divides camps? Like, just on the very, just surface level. Don't over-spiritualize it. 
Yeah. He, he showed up with what? A stick in his hand, and now he has enough to divide two camps. I mean, th- this is significant. This shows that God has done an amazing work in his life. Now, Jacob divides camps, and he prays to God. In verses 9 through 12, it says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the, as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What does his prayer reveal? He's scared. He's humbled. There's humility. What else? Yeah, he recognizes what God has done for him in the past. Yeah, what he's able to do. What the, what the promises are. Yeah, remember, the children of God should be fueled by God's promises. That We shouldn't just be fueled by what we want to be fueled by and trust God in the process. The fuel for our journey is God's promises. What, what, what's in store? What is he doing? What are the plans? How is he going to do it? Because if he's promised that, I want to trust him in that and not just... Write my own little journey of faith and trust God along the way. God's promises are really important. And he goes back and he, and he, how does he refer to God? The God of my fathers. Okay. This is actually the longest recorded prayer in the entire book of Genesis. This is really significant. To hear him say this prayer, to have a sober-mindedness about it, to be fearful, to go to the Lord and to address the Lord as he does is significant. It's the longest recorded prayer and he's mindful of God's promises and he's humbly seeking help that he does not feel entitled to. Our prayers are important. We can learn about prayer as we look at this prayer. It's the longest recorded one in Genesis that you seek help. You let your request be made known, but you don't feel entitled to something. He's not saying, God, you know what? You know my name, right? I mean, you know who my dad is, right? What he's doing is he's saying, what we have received, we do not deserve. And if we don't get anything else, we don't, it's, it's fine. But I, I'm asking for this. I'm fearful and I'm trusting you. Um, how does Jacob's view of the eternal affect his view of the temporal? Yes. That's sobering. I mean, for, for Jacob, it's, I will make you as numerous as the sand on the shores, the stars in the sky. He's got a big camp, but he can count them. What God has promised is something that cannot be counted. So he's going to have to face this. Um, the temporal things have less value because of his view of the eternal things. The temporal things are of less importance and significance because of the eternal things. And what we're seeing is this this awareness of God's presence and this eternal perspective that does affect the temporal. Your eternal inheritance should affect the way you live now, not just in a vague way like, oh yeah, I don't live for things now. No, it actually affects the decisions you make, the way you view um, certain circumstances, the way you view loss even, which we'll talk about more in a minute. 
But our eternal perspective should absolutely affect our handling of temporal things. Um, one commentator said, and I, I'm just going to read this to you because it's really well put, and then we'll talk about it. It is to be noted that the sons of God are never endued with, with a constancy so steadfast that the infirmity of the flesh does not betray itself in them. What it means is we're all going to be plagued with fear and doubt and anxiety at some point. When you become a Christian, it's not just like, oh, congratulations, all your, all your frustration goes away, all your anxiety goes away, you're never going to have to deal with fear or sadness. That's not the case. It goes on to say, for they who fancy that faith, um, for they who fancy that faith is exempt from all fear, have had no experience of the true nature of faith. And then this is a really important point. He says, for God does not promise that he will be present with us for the purpose of removing the sense of our dangers. But in order that fear may not prevail and overwhelm us in despair. What are some ways that you guys have seen in your lives or other people's lives where you still have a sense of the dangers around you, though you have a boldness that says God's present and we can move forward? What are some examples that we have? We can spend some time recounting God's deeds as an act of worship right now. Where you have a sense of the dangers. It's not that, oh, they're not dangers. No, 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 they're dangers. And I have a sense of them. But I, I'm not overwhelmed by them and brought to utter despair because I know that God's presence. What are some things that you guys have experienced or seen others experience? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great example. If you don't have a sense of the possibilities or the, uh-oh, let's, let's watch out for this or watch out for this, you, you don't really have a sense of how great God is and what he delivers you from, what he sees you through, what he provides, um, how steadfast he is. What are some other examples? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What else? The reason we need to be sober-minded about these things is because there is a false load of trash being foisted on a number of people that, you know, you become a Christian, you don't have to worry about those things anymore. You don't have to be troubled. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to deal with these problems. It's, it's almost like you enter into some spiritual state where everything's just fine. 
And that's simply not true. We're called to persevere through trials, to have an understanding of what's going on, to have a sense of the danger around us because we need to be sober-minded in the midst of it and see how great our God is who delivers us from and through those things, who provides for us when it looks like there's no provision, who sustains us when it looks like sustaining will be impossible, who delivers us when we have no idea how we're going to be delivered from or through something. We need to have a very real sense, a sober-minded sense of our trials so that we can appreciate who God is. And if we say that you become a Christian and everything's fine, or you don't have to worry about those things, or just, like, that's not a good encouragement. If someone's like, I'm dealing with a sick child, I'm dealing with an unbelieving family member, I'm dealing with some, it's not an encouragement to, it's okay. Keep on keeping on. That's not encouraging. What's encouraging is that there's a God who is sovereign and on his throne and in control. Yeah. 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 You know, then although some of those things aren't necessarily untrue, just in the phrases yeah. where, you know, keep on keeping on. Okay, yeah, good. But yeah. if if we camp out there and we don't go deeper and don't learn yeah. those for someone who has a sick child or who's just like, you know, yeah. then if we don't go deeper in our faith, we don't have anything Yeah. Yeah, it's like a perpetual membership drive kind of a thing. Um, have you ever been so scared or terrified that you're frozen and just incapable of of making necessary decisions? Y'all ever, has anyone ever experienced that? Like sometimes you can experience it situationally or actually physically where you're just so terrified. It's like, I don't even know what to do. I don't want to move because I'm not sure what to do. I was thinking of, uh, I've heard of people who are in like combat situations and like just the intensity of the situation um, causes some people to freeze up where you're in combat and you've you got all the gear you need to move forward and make war and you look over and someone's sitting there just, just can't move, just nothing, not speaking, not able to do anything. I was thinking of uh, uh, John Piper has a book called uh, Don't Waste Your Life and he talks about wartime mentality and f- for what, what should happen to us as those who are um, called to this and not to get wrapped up in civilian pursuits um, that that wartime mentality sharpens your senses and you hear a twig snap and you're like, okay, wait, we got to make a decision. We got to move forward. This has got to be right. We got to be aware of the dangers. We got to be aware of what's going on. We got to make sure we're staying at the task. We're ambassadors. We're not making decisions and speaking on our own behalf. We're speaking on behalf of the one who sent us. And um, I was thinking about, there was a, a, uh, a scene in Saving Private Ryan. Have y'all seen that movie? It's pretty gory, so I couldn't really show a clip. Um, but there's a scene where... Um, there is, uh, there's a hand-to-hand combat going on between two opposing soldiers, and there's this guy who's bringing ammo, and he's coming up the stairs, and he gets so scared, he just stops, and he just kind of sits there weeping, and he's holding a gun and hundreds of rounds of ammunition, and you can, he can hear in this next room his fellow soldier in combat with this guy, and it is a really hard scene to watch because what happens is one soldier dies slowly um, in this hand-to-hand combat, and then the, the opposing soldier comes out and walks down the stairs, and he's just sitting there frozen. And he had nothing. He couldn't do a thing. He just wept like a little sissy. And the reality was he was, he was equipped to, to make war. He was equipped to do what he needed to do. He had a rifle. He had a sidearm. He had lots of ammunition. 
he had training and he froze up. Um, and so what we're seeing here is that uh, Jacob is, is making some decisions. He, he, he divides the camps. He doesn't get so worried and so wigged out that he doesn't do anything. He decides to divide the camps, and we'll see some more of those details. But what we need to be mindful of is that when God brings us into trials, it's not so that we just freeze up and don't know what to do. But he's equipped us in a number of ways to be able to persevere and make war as is necessary and to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to put his glory on display rightly. In verses 13 through 21, we see, um, uh, we see some more things that, J- that Jacob does, and it's kind of confusing, but other things take shape. 13 says, so he stayed there that night, and from what he had he, uh, with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. So he sent people ahead to kind of butter Esau up, and now we see the details of it a little more. Uh, 200 female goats. A lot of the old commentaries call them she-goats, which is funny. Uh, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking cows and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Um, I'm sorry, milking camels and their calves. You all having milking camels? Um, Verse 16, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, uh, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Uh, Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you shall find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may, here's the thought. You see his actions and now we get to see the thought behind the action. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night at the camp. So, what do you see? What, what is Esau receiving? Like one after the other droves. What is this? Oh, these are gifts for you. Uh, here comes Jacob. And another. Oh, these are for you. Jacob's on his way. Oh, these are for you. Jacob's right behind me. Oh, these are for you. Jacob's on the way. So he's got like droves, literally droves of, of gifts. And he, all, all he knows is Jacob is on the way. Um, This is where I think Jacob's actions begin to take a little more reasonable shape in my mind. And I want to ask a hypothetical question to get us a little more sober-minded. Because I can read that. I can read those verses and think, you know what? He is a total sissy. He's just, he's not trusting God. He's just trying to buy him off. And while there may be a lack of trust, there's also something else at work here that I want us to see. So I want to ask you a question. Don't answer it out loud. Hypothetically, consider it in your own minds. What loss... Are you willing to sustain for the sake of faithful Christian duty? What loss are you willing to sustain for the sake of faithful Christian duty? The sober-mindedness should cast Jacob in a little bit more of a reasonable light. What I'm seeing here, when I take it all into play, and I know what God has shown him, and I know where he's moving, and it's interesting because these verses are hard because as you read through a bunch of different commentators and even notes and study Bibles, a lot of people have different opinions on what exactly is happening here, and I think there's probably a little of both. I think there's doubt. 
I think he's trying to pad his account. I think he's trying to win him over, but I also see a guy who's coming in really low. And he's willing to suffer loss for it. We don't remember. These aren't character studies of perfect or totally imperfect people. They're all imperfect to some degree. And I think that he's doubtful. I think he's concerned. We know he's distressed, but he did go to the Lord in prayer. But what happened after the prayer? Did God say, yes, I hear you. Move forward. Everything's going to be fine. Move along. No. There was no response from God after the prayer. But there was still the call, go home. Move forward. That already existed there. And so he prayed to the Lord, and he didn't hear anything, so he still has to do what the Lord says. And so I see him moving forward, but I see him coming in really low. My question is this. If the world is watching you be oppressed, if, if you're being oppressed and the world is watching, and your response is to come in low, willing to suffer loss, what judgment might the world pass on you? How might they see you? You're at work. They know that you are a believer. Someone just rails on you how weak you are for having to trust some God that doesn't even exist. And you come in real low. And you suffer some sort of loss in that. What does it look like to the world? What? Like you're a fool? What else does it look like? Weak. Looks like weakness. And what we have to take into account, you've heard Ben say the faithful and the crazy look a lot alike. And I think something that we might be seeing in the scriptures tonight is that it may also be true that the lowly and the weak look a lot alike. To come in in a low manner and be willing to suffer loss does not mean that you are necessarily weak. And the reason we know that is we consider Christ on the cross. What was the view of the world towards him? What were some of the things that were said? Yeah, come on down. Why are you suffering this loss? What's the point? Do something. Do do the genie, whatever. Make something happen. The lowly and the weak look a lot alike, but there's a distinct difference. Now look at verses 22 through 25. The same night arose. The same night he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, and his 11 children. And there was also a girl, Dinah, who we'll study next week, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So he's alone and he's old and it's the middle of the night. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Don't you wish there was more there? I mean, don't, I mean this is, this is, these verses are easily sensationalized. Um, I, I've heard everything from you wrestle with God and prevail, and you show him who's boss, which is ridiculous, to other extremes. And I, I, I don't want us to sensationalize these verses. This is crazy. What happens here is weird. It's different. It's hard to understand. Um, this is 
pivotal and transforming point, a pivotal and transforming point in Jacob's life. This is a big deal. And it's a little crazy. He's an old guy. The family's gone. It's the middle of the night. He gets hit or something. And it's wrestling. Have any of y'all ever wrestled before or fought? Does anyone watch like MMA on TV or anything like that? Not that I do. Um, Usually it's five-minute rounds. You see these dudes who are in some of the best shape of anyone on the planet, and they get in there, and they're wrestling, and they're fighting, and after the first five-minute round, they're breathing heavy, and after the second five-minute round, if they've really been fighting and not just dancing around, they're wore out, and the third five-minute round is just sloppy, ugly fighting if they're still going, because these specimens of physical activity are so tired. A 90-year-old in the middle of the night Till morning, wrestling. A video clip of this would be awesome. Like, what did it even look like? The moves, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, so when we read these, these few verses, what are some of the questions that y'all have? We'll unpack it together. What are some of the questions that you think of when you see them wrestling and the socket, the hip? Like, he was old. I bet he had a bad hip anyway. Do what? Why? why? Yeah, why? That's a great question. Who? What do you mean by who? Who's wrestling? What are the options? God? Esau? Satan? Angel? Man? This is God in the form of man. It's an angel. Is that cleared up for y'all? No. No, he was very surprised. Yeah, some think it's a vision. However, his hip is out of joint. He does have a limp. Uh, This is confusing. It it really is. Um, However, um, let me ask it this way. Why would God allow his child to wrestle with him and prevail? This is God wrestling with him, and he prevails. I'm sure that produces more questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you see old 90-year-old Jacob. Yeah! Oh, you know? It's, this is hard. This is weird. But why would God allow his child to wrestle with him and prevail? Give him some confidence, toughen him up, a little steadfastness. What were you going to say? Same thing, yeah. Yes. I remember I have three brothers, and we're all about the same size. I've got two that are a little bit bigger both ways than me, and one that is real similar to me. And so you're like 6'1", 6'1", then like 6'3", 6'3", and my dad's 5'8", and um, obviously, growing up, there was a season where we were not bigger than him. Um, but when we would wrestle, you know, my dad, he'd get down on his knees, and he'd, he wouldn't, like, go all out and beat us. Um, but he would, he would kind of come down to our level and wrestle with us at the level that we could handle and toughen us up a little bit. And you, there was, I remember certain points where you're wrestling with your dad, and you're kind of like, oh, I can take him. And then you realize, no, I can't take him. That's not going to happen. 
But you get this confidence because he, he can, dads will toughen up their boys on purpose. It's not, it's not that I want to hurt you. I just want to toughen you up. It's time to man up. What I believe is happening here is sanctification. This is a process of sanctification. Jacob has been met by God on terms that Jacob can survive, prevail, not die. But, in a, I mean, we could say that it's time to man up. He's getting his man card back here. That's, what, that's what's happening with Jacob. It's time for you to learn what it means to be tough. It's time for you to gain some, some resilience and some steadfastness and some fortitude. And what God is doing here is just that. He's toughening him up. He meets him in the middle of the night. We don't know what it looks like. We can only speculate. Uh, but um, one, one commentator says, Adversity is either the rod with which God corrects our sins or a test of our faith and patience. And what we see here is that he wrestles all night. So he's very tired. And there's a prevailing. And then he gets a new name. Now, um, this is the first mention of the name Israel in the Bible. Israel is something after the fact. We're all very familiar with Israel. But this is the first time Israel is mentioned in the Bible. And from here, it is mentioned over 2,500 times. That makes this a very significant event. This is a really pivotal time of his life. uh, Israel is mentioned here. The renaming of Jacob brings to a climax a lifetime of struggling with others. Through all this, Jacob has finally come to realize the importance of being blessed by God. The events of the preceding years have changed Jacob. And the God of his father is now becoming his God. It's, it's, a, it's a moment where you, you mark it down because it's significant. And he's sent on his way with a bum hip. He's sent on his way with a bum hip, reminding him that God gave him great mercy and could have ended him just as easily. It's like, oh, he prevailed against God by God's hand, of which that finger put his hip out of socket to remind him, I could have crushed you at any moment. Uh, don't get too overwhelmed at the, the victory. I'm teaching you something here. By the way, bam, there you go. You got a limp. Everyone's going to ask about it. You tell them how bad I am. Um, verses 26 through 32 say, Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. This is God. Let me go, for the day is broken. You see God coming to him in terms where it, he's learning a lesson. God is showing great mercy and great grace here. And he says, Let me go, uh, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, <laughs> Old, busted up hip Jacob. I will not let you go until you bless me. He's still wrestling for the blessing. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now, this is interesting. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed um, Penuel. It's just a different phrasing there. Limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, uh, Jacob's wrestling. He wants this blessing. And a blessing, the inferior is blessed by the greater. When it comes to a blessing, if I was to speak a blessing on your life, I'm not speaking my blessing on your life. I'm hoping to speak a blessing from the Lord on your life because a blessing is something that goes from the greater to to the inferior. And so here he wants this blessing because after wrestling with God, he knows his place. There's no doubt here. Um, Here we see that though God's presence may do harm to our flesh, 
the eternal blessing is worth it. Uh, what happened when Isaac asked Jacob his name? Remember when he went in for the blessing? Red stew, all that junk, put the hair on his arms like a doofus. He goes in and, and Isaac says, what is your name? What does Jacob say? Esau. He lied. What does Jacob mean? Deceiver. Okay. Now, God says, what is your name? And what does he say? Jacob. I'm a deceiver. I'm Jacob. And here, what is Jacob's view of what, what just happened? What's his view of what just happened? Is he haughty? Is he strutting his 90-year-old busted hip stuff? What, what, what's his view? He has been what? Delivered. delivered. He knows he has actually been delivered. So it's like he fought God by God and prevailed against God by God. So who gets the credit? God. And it seems as though maybe God had something to say through this whole process. Now, um, in short, God shows up and beats up Jacob and turns him into a man. Fortitude, courage, masculinity, boldness, perseverance, and dignity. These are things that are lacking in a lot of men now. There's a lot of professing Christians who are lacking in fortitude, courage, masculinity, boldness, perseverance, dignity. A lot of men want to get married. Um, I was, heard one commentator today talking about it. He said, a lot of men want to get married just so that they can have a woman that will take care of them like their mom did, as opposed to taking care of their family like Jacob's doing and looking out for them. Um, Mark Driscoll says, this guy's moving from a homeless coward to being Israel. It's through trial that we grow in character. Um, turn to James 1.12. Someone read that out loud, James 1.12. Turn to 1 Peter 4.12. Just a little over. What does that say? Twelve and thirteen. Someone read that out loud. Okay, I will. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, if I was Jacob, I'd be like, all right, this is strange. That's a fiery trial that's strange. But we know from examples set before us that fiery trials should not be something that are completely strange to us. These are things that we've heard in the recent sermons on being hated by the world. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Um, next week, we're going to look at chapter 33, where Jacob actually meets Esau. And it may not be exactly what you think. Um, we were going to go through chapter 33 tonight, but it's seven, and that's not going to happen. Uh, so um, I'm way ahead of the game for next week. Uh, but um, next week, we're going to consider what happens when he meets with Esau and how it's maybe not what he expected and how a lot is revealed about himself, Esau, and, um, and God. And we're also going to talk about reconciliation next week. Um, 
I'm, I'm thankful that we get to spend some more time preparing for that because reconciliation is a very hard thing. Uh, what does it mean to be reconciled to someone? What if someone is at odds with you? Is it different if they're believers or if they're non-believers? Can you be reconciled to a non-believer? What if it's family, like in this case? Um, and what if they have a different idea of what reconciliation is than you do? And then two weeks from now, we'll go to Genesis 34, which I'll, I'll warn y'all ahead of time is, is uh, a hard chapter. Um, the end is really cool. Um, but we're, we talk about Dinah, and we're actually going to, um, we're going to touch on issues um, like rape and some other things. Um, and then some of the, and then her brothers just go crazy on this whole village, um, which that's the cool part. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you all ahead of time in case you all have kids coming in or whatever uh, so that we can um, tend to that as is needed. Uh, let's pray. We're done. Lord, your word is just full. It's so rich. It's such a blessing. Um, Lord, tonight I pray that we would have this reminder that it's through trial that um, our character is, is conformed more to the character that you would have us live for your glory. I pray that in our struggles we would know that because you are sovereign, there's no situation we will find ourselves in that is void of your hand. And so if we're struggling against some, with something at work, the struggle is actually in this inadvertent way with you, where you're conforming us more to the image of Christ through the process of sanctification. We know that it's through hard things, trials, uh, maybe uncertainty, frustration, that you reveal a lot of really beautiful things to us. I pray that that would, knowing that ahead of time, knowing that it's not something totally strange and out of the ordinary, I pray, Lord, that that would keep us steadfast so that we put your glory on display in a way that everyone around us knows that our God is different. In the same way that they arrived where they were going and they set up shop and worship because they wanted to make a statement about their God as opposed to the other gods. The way that it was different that Jacob's God was not like Laban's God. Uh, we want to do the same thing in our lives. We want to um, show people that we are uh, absolutely convinced um, of it and not wishy-washy uh, when it comes to how great our God is. You're incredible, Lord. Lord, I'm thankful for your role in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm thankful also for your role in the life of Esau, as we'll see next week, that you, in fact, change his heart and move him in ways that we would maybe not think of or consider. Lord, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.